The Tour is part of the Osiris Podcast Network, connecting you to music, artists, and culture. Hear it all at OsirisPod.com. This episode of The Tour is brought to you by Canova Communications, leaders in developing content on every platform. Visit CanovaCommunications.com. When a musician is just starting out, passion can overshadow basic human needs. If I could eat and take a subway or not eat and still take a subway and, you know, keep this going, that was all that mattered. Hi, and welcome to The Tour. I'm your host, Ted Canova. David Bromberg just loves getting lost in whatever he does. Early on, it was Pete Seeger's folk, the Reverend Gary Davis's blues and gospel, and bluegrass from Flatt and Scruggs. But he was also found at Woodstock, though he never made it on stage. And when he did, it was a big one, with 600,000 staring him down. It all led to Bromberg's self-titled debut in 1971. Soon after, he remade a Jerry Jeff Walker song, which became his own signature. You know, I knew a man, Bojangles, and he danced for you. And worn out shoes. Bromberg's touring and sessions work exploded, and he became known as much for playing guitar, fiddle, and dobro as for his storytelling and wit. I was at this carnival just a few years ago. No big deal, Ferris wheel. He was riding high down the Americana Road, recording with Dylan, three Beatles. So hand us the money, don't stand there and shiver. And in 1975, the Eagles. One of these nights. And then in 1980, Bromberg stopped. Just like Forrest Gump, who after running back and forth across America for years, just said, I'm pretty tired. I think I'll go home now. His focus turned to violins. He opened a shop and became a foremost expert on identifying rare ones. Then after 20 plus years away from the scene, Bromberg was back in 2007 and for the first time was nominated for a Grammy with Try Me One More Time. I ride a mail train, baby. Can't buy your thrill. This decade, three albums, including The Blues, The Whole Blues, and Nothing But The Blues, which one critic called a masterclass in blues-oriented Americana. I want to take the stand, raise up my right hand, get me a stack of Bibles ten feet high. I sat down with Bromberg in the green room at Levon Helm Studios in Woodstock, New York. He goes deep into that historic Isle of Wight show, recording with three Beatles, turning down John Lennon twice, and a recent phone call from Bob Dylan. David, we're in the green room at Levon Helm Studios, and when we go back to the concert Love for Levon, A Benefit to Save the Barn, that performance that you had with Joan Osborne, what was that like that night? Oh, it was fun. It was a tune that I had to learn for the, for the concert. Don't do it. I never had sung it before. And boy, that Levon could play drums and sing the very syncopated part that he sang. It was fantastic what he did. You've been back to the barn many times since yeah. that concert. Is there a special feeling that you have walking into the barn? Well, it's a familiar place and I feel comfortable. I miss Levon and Muddy. You know, he had a great dog, Muddy. And uh, I still miss Rick. 
Before I stopped performing, I used to run into the band in the weirdest places. I mean, of course, backstage and some hotel, you know, recording studio, of course. A truck stop? No, you know? where? What, on the New York Thruway? Where? I don't remember where, but I remember running into them in a truck stop. I spoke to Amy Helm, who thought that her dad just played drums in Rick Danko's band. <laughs> yeah. David, you once gave advice to new artists. To move to a big city, no place else in the United States counts. Do you still believe that? I do, but I think I was a little more specific than a big city. I don't think it's going to help you much to move to Chicago or Boston or even Austin. I think you have to be in New York, L.A., or Nashville because they're cities with a very active musical uh, scene, but more than that, they're the center of the national news. So if you get a review in a Boston magazine, everyone in Boston will know about you. Everyone outside of Boston has never heard of you. On the other hand, New York, L.A., or Nashville, that's where the national news comes from and your name spreads. You had taken a step back from performing and touring. Can you reflect what happened to the music industry? I think it's much harder today. These days, the only way to make money as a musician to support your family is to tour. Get away from your family. Let's go back to where it all started. The measles helped you learn music. I kind of was interested in playing guitar, but my brother played guitar, so I, I didn't mess with it. But when I got the measles, I was 13. It was kind of boring. So I borrowed one of my brother's guitars and one of his books. I could already read music. And I taught myself guitar lying on my back. You went from living in a New York City suburb, Tarrytown, to going to school at Columbia, mm -hmm. and then being exposed to Greenwich Village. Tell us about those days in Greenwich Village to you. I was performing in places that they called basket houses because there's a complex reason that they, could, that they could legally not pay you. It had to do with cabaret laws. So the money that you made was from passing a bread basket. So they were called basket houses. And the people who came, and uh, the tourists, and sat in the place and listened to the performers. Never believed that you weren't being paid. They were paying four bucks for a Coca-Cola that was a dime in a, uh, anywhere else. So you had to have a good basket pitch. Did it make you wonder whether music could be a career? Oh, it never occurred to me that there was a doubt about doing it for the rest of my life. A career was something I never considered. Uh, you, you know, I mean, uh, this is what I want to do always, but thinking of it in terms of a career, I just didn't think that way. Right, but did you think that it could be a livelihood, that you could make enough money? I didn't care. If I could eat and take a subway or not eat and still take a subway and keep this going, that was all that mattered. So blues happened first and Muddy was somebody who you were exposed to. I think I discovered him when I was about 15 when I went to White Plains and in a record store, I saw the cover of an album called Muddy Sings Big Bill Brunzi. Sitting in my window Oh yeah, I'm looking out at the rain And I knew Brunzi, and I didn't know Muddy at all, and I bought it, and boy, I loved it. It was incredible. All of a sudden, electric instruments. While I was at Columbia, I met Reverend Gary Davis. Hallelujah, and he was playing in a, a place in the village. I was walking around the village, uh, Bleecker Street, and there was a club called the Dragon's Den, and they had a sandwich sign outside that said, This Afternoon, Reverend Gary Davis. 
So I went in and I paid my money and I listened to the set and I'd already heard him on record, but to see him perform was incredible. Ow! Afterwards, I asked him if I could take lessons from him and he said, yes, $5, bring the money, honey. <laughs> and uh, that was the reverend. So I started taking uh, guitar lessons from Gary Davis. And when you were in Greenwich Village, the access to other artists must have really been something for somebody your age at the time. Well, there were some people who I really was fascinated by. I wanted, you know, this is in the days before video recorders. You know, I wanted to make a movie of a guy named Paul Siebel, who, who was a fantastic performer, and Richie Havens, who was another fantastic performer, both unknown at the time. I played guitar for most of the people in the village. I played guitar for Richie and for uh, Paul Siebel and, and for uh, Emmy Lou Harris. There was a guy named Major Wiley who was around the village uh, in those days who I loved playing with. He's now a, a movie actor in England. I'd love to run into Major Wiley again. Speaking of running into people, you produced a couple of songs for Dylan that appeared on the basement tapes. There's a story of Dylan losing his guitar pick. Yeah, it was pretty funny. What happened? Well, he dropped his guitar pick into the guitar, and he was standing there for several minutes trying to shake the pick out. And I said, on the talk back, because I was producing, and he was in the vocal booth, I said, Bob, do you need a pick? He said, no, I got one right here. Kept shaking the thing. When's the last time you spoke to Bob Dylan? Uh, maybe a few months ago. Can you share any bit about that since it's, you know, such a mystery of what he's up to? I don't really know what he's up to. He had run across a video of me and my wife's band. You know, one thing that I learned from the Reverend, the Reverend always tried to make his guitar like sound like a piano. And I fell in love with Ray Charles's singing and piano playing. So the particular tune that Bob ran across, I was playing Ray Charles style piano on the guitar. What song was that? It was Drown in My Own Tears. If you don't think you're gonna come home soon. And he found a video of that? Yeah. Online? On YouTube. I, Bob Dylan is searching YouTube for music. I have no idea how it <laughs> happened. But he was asking me about how I learned those chords and where they came from. And we talked about that for a little while. And then I asked a favor of him. He used to have this radio show that I just loved. And I asked him if, if you know, he had any CDs of that show. Dean Autry had a cowboy code, sometimes known as the Cowboy Commandments. On the show, he would pick a topic and then find songs all about that topic. came up with some great and obscure stuff and that's the stuff i love nelly kelly loved baseball games knew the players knew all their names you could see. he said sure and i ended up getting a little mini ipod with all of the shows on it oh, that's great yeah it's wonderful he's another very unique human being and he's boy is he smart and it's great to talk to him you also had exposure to the beatles and a kid growing up in Terrytown, you could never imagine that you're going to be performing with the Beatles, both Ringo and George. Yeah, and I also got to play a little bit with Paul. John actually invited me to his apartment a few times, but I didn't know it came really from John until years later. I, I wouldn't go. Be what, what? You, why? Because I didn't want to be the little starlet in the corner wanting to be noticed. I had no idea that he knew what I did and that he was actually interested in me. I mean, I was not very bright. You weren't just invited once, you were invited a few times. Yes. 
And years later, I played on a couple of Ringo's records. It was a great privilege. And Ringo told me that when my first record came out, John sat the other three guys down and made them listen to it. So what do you think John heard that he wanted to expose the Beatles to? I suspect, but it's only a suspicion. I had on, uh, on that record a song that I'd written that's, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's absolutely unique. What song? It's called Sammy's Song, and it's the song of a young man's sex first sexual experience, and it's a bad one. And lying on her back upon the bed, she beckons. Sammy won't lie down yet. He wants her nude. Which of the four Beatles inspired you the most? You know, people used to say, oh, he's the intellectual one, he's the cute one, he's the quiet one, he's Ringo, <laughs> whatever they would say. I just looked at them as a single unit until I met them individually. And then it was a question of doing work with them. Did any of them teach you something about music? Oh, sure. Uh, um, not, not directly. None of them sat me down and said, now do this. But through listening to uh, the Beatles records over the years, if you didn't learn anything, then, then you should take up another line. You're talking about the early 70s. 1969, at Woodstock, you happened to find refuge from the rain in a teepee. You met Jerry Garcia. I found myself in his teepee during the rain. We played guitar together the whole time for the whole storm. I enjoyed, Just the two of you? Just the two of us. He would have kicked me out if he wasn't cool with it, and so I think we both had a good time. And there actually is a video on YouTube which is mislabeled. If you look for Mimi Farina at Woodstock, and it's not Mimi Farina, it's actually Rosalie Sorrells, and she's singing, and Jerry is playing guitar, and I'm playing dobro. And you can't see me until the very end, and then about all you see is the back of me, but you hear me. Sometimes I wish that I could be I was there with Rosalie to perform, but they never put her on stage, so I never got on stage. A year later, you went to the Isle of Wight, and it was a really famous Isle of Wight because of all of the disruption. Should music concerts be free? There were protests. Someone jumped on stage. Uh, was it during Joni Mitchell? Now listen, a lot of people who get up here and sing, I know it's fun, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's fun for me. I. I get my feelings off through my music. Famous listen, performers are being booed. You got your life wrapped up in it, and it's very difficult to come out here and lay something down. Give us some respect. I was there on Wednesday. By then, they realized that they couldn't charge 200,000 people who were already in. They'd broken down the fences. So they did the sensible thing. Okay, we're going to be broke for the rest of our lives, but... There's nothing we can do. We have to do the show. And they booed a lot of people, really good people, off the stage. And you also played solo at Isle of Wight, didn't you? Well, what happened was interesting. Rosalie's performances were very intimate, and they were in a, in a small room. They're really great. She wasn't really designed to do a 600,000-person audience. And even had she been, that audience was the toughest audience. We just work here, you know? I think they're gonna shoot us. We followed Chris Christopherson, who barely got off without being uh, thrown off, you know, by the crowd. Heading for the train, feeling nearly faded as my dreams. And, geez, he was great, but 
this this was a very difficult crowd. I just want to tell you people something. There's some good people out of here, and you are insulting their intelligence. And after a few tunes, they started getting restless. Rosalie asked me to do a tune that I used to end my shows with in the half a dozen times that I'd done a show. All right, man. And uh, it was a long, funny tune. She never asked me to do a tune in her set before. Well, I knew a man, Bojangles, and he danced for you. And never after, which I don't mind. And worn out shoes. And the crowd liked it. Silver hair, a ragged... And they allowed Rosalie to finish her set. So it was a smart thing. So you would only perform live six times before that? I mean, Greenwich Village, yeah, but... Oh, I don't think I'd performed out of the village at that point. And what happened was that when we came off stage, the promoters asked me if I'd come back at dusk, which at the time I didn't know. I was pretty green, but that's the very best time to be performing at an outdoor concert. Mr. Bojangles. So I came back and I said, how many songs do you want me to do? And they said, do an hour. And I know I'd never done an hour before. So I went up and I did an hour and then I got at least three encores. I don't remember how many, but they, they liked it. And when I came off stage, now this was Wednesday, there was no press. When I came off stage, there were these uh, guys with movie cameras and banks of lights and all that. So that was wonderful, but it was between me and 600,000 people. <laughs> and, and the weird thing is, you know, I've had people approach me who remind me that they saw me at a time when they were one of six people in an audience. But until a couple of years ago, I never had any, I never ran into anybody who saw me perform at the Isle of Wight. Oh my gosh, what a thrill. A couple of years later, you really hit it with Mr. Bojangles. I loved playing guitar on it. I was Jerry Jeff Walker's band. A new man Bojangles and he danced for you. I worked out a guitar part that I liked. I actually learned it by osmosis. I never knew. I, I really knew the lyrics and all, but I, you know, I'd performed it with Jerry Jeff so many times that, that I had it all. Jerry Jeff was extremely generous to me on, on his first album, especially where he put my picture along with his on the back cover. So that was, that was a very nice thing. David, what's it like when you're on stage and a jam goes out of control in a good way? When it goes off the rails, what's the feeling for a guitar player like you? Whoopee. You ride it. You go with it and ride it for as long as you can. If it's good, it's good. Follow it. Go where it goes. By 1980, you had enough. Well, I was working too much. At one point, I was on the road for two years without being home for as long as two weeks and that'll burn you out. And I was too dumb to realize it was only burnout, or I could have taken six, nine months off and come back. Well, what did you think, that you just didn't have the musical chops anymore? Yeah, uh, I mean, I realized when I wasn't on the road, I wasn't practicing, I wasn't writing, and I wasn't jamming. Where's the musician in this? So I felt that I didn't want to be faking it. You know, there were a lot of guys who who got burnt out and would drag himself on stage and do a bitter imitation of something they used to love. And I didn't want to do that. I spoke to Mark Cohn recently, who, he had an incredible breakout debut album. But he wondered a couple of years later, maybe my narrative isn't like James and Joni, where you cut an album, tour, make it. Cut an album, tour, make it. And he wondered, maybe he's just not cut out to be a musician any further. Well, there's a difficult thing with your second album. You 
write a body of songs and you do what you feel are the best ones and out of those enough to make an album are selected and then you go out and tour to promote the album and in touring you may not have time to write any more songs so okay come on in we got to do another album holy cow i did all my best ones on the first one so you walked away and during that time you developed an incredible skill and opened a violin shop to identify rare violins it wasn't to make violins well i graduated from violin making school that's that that was the first thing i did so i would understand how to look at them but my interest was always in being able to identify because you cannot identify a violin by the piece of paper that's inside it if there is a piece of paper inside it you have to know what the work looks like. You know, when I started, I thought, well, there must be this one little mark on every one of each maker's, no such thing. It's not that simple. You have to learn how to see the outline first, and the outlines are always a little different from maker to maker. Well, not always, but frequently. And during that time away, were there tinges of saying, hey, I need to get back into writing music? No. I am very good at focus, or I used to be anyhow, <laughs> very good at focusing. And, uh, you know, when I, I told you that when I was doing sessions with somebody famous, I wasn't worried about anything other than what it was I was doing. That's what I was focused on. And I was focused on the violins. I, I had tunnel vision. That's what I was doing. We talk about a guitar, we talk about a violin. Sometimes you weren't too confident with your voice that it was more the guitar, but over the years you feel that your voice has gotten better. Well, I think it got better because I, I got a lot of it, good advice from people who knew on how to sing better, but I really never applied it until I stopped performing. And then if I happened to have a guitar and play something, I, I might try something that, like Phoebe Snow gave me the some of the best advice. She was a good friend. Laid out at night Trying to play my hand So I, I, I would try out things and they, they over time they worked. And the other thing that worked was when I started performing again, I worked with musicians who were very good singers for the first time. And they always sang in tune. <laughs> so that it helps. Boy, does it help. It helps a great deal. So what specific advice were you given to become a better singer? Phoebe told me, well, you need to open your throat. And the way you do that is think about a yawn. In the inside of your throat, do what you do when you yawn. You pull the back of your throat back. That really helps. The other thing I learned is that uh, the voice doesn't really come out of your throat so much. It comes out of what they call a mask. It comes out of your forehead, eyes, and the top of your nose. So after a hiatus from performing, you came back in 2007 with Try Me One More Time. Early this morning, just about fall, my used to be come knocking on my door, she come crying. Grammy nominated against Levon yeah. with Dirt Farmer. Yeah, and, and that year he was getting a Lifetime Achievement Award too. I knew Levin was going to win. He made a great album, and he's an important guy, and he deserved to win. In 2011, the album Use Me featured 11 songs from musicians you solicited. How did you go about soliciting music from Levon and Linda Ronstadt and Vince Gill and Keb Moe and Los Lobos? My friends, <laughs> the feel is there a part of duty. <laughs> Some of them uh, were people who I hadn't spoken to in many years. 
and perhaps had forgotten that I'd ever spoken to. One of the people was uh, John Hyatt, and it, he used to open for me. I'd forgotten that. Evidently, I wasn't too much of a jerk because he was wonderful. What was your request that they do for you? I asked each of those people to write a song for me and then produce me doing it. That's 11 that did it. How many other phone calls did you make? Not that many. There was one guy who I, I really wanted to work with and he wasn't comfortable with the whole idea and that was Dion DiMucci. And I had played on a, a couple of Dion's albums and I couldn't tell you why, but I, I just love the guy. I just think he's marvelous. And, and I really wanted to do something with him. With Linda Ronstadt in the health that she's in, have you spoken to her lately? Yeah. How's she doing? She's doing very well, all things considered. She doesn't get out much, but she's so smart. This is one of the smartest women on the planet. And she's doing a lot of reading. And uh, we've exchanged a few books and, and she's wonderful. As she fights Parkinson's, she contributed to this album with the song, It's Just a Matter of Time. You'd best remember on your way to fortune and fame What goes up is sure to come down I... She didn't write that. She just produced. She told me that she liked the way I did that, so we did that one. The song Nobody's Fault But Mine is really some traditional gospel song. If I die, my soul is that one of the ones that are most special to you? Yeah, I love the tune. I've recorded it twice, actually. Three times, if you count producing Bob Dylan singing it. I don't know if it was a result of that song, but you've been quoted as saying, a song belongs to me for the period of time I'm performing it. I just figure I own it if I'm singing it. Yeah, if, uh, you know, if I'm singing it, then, then for that period of time, it's mine. David, these stories going down memory lane, but also dusting off some fresh things and fresh music, does it make you want to tour a little bit more? I want to keep control of it. I didn't even realize I could control it back in the day. Now I know. And I'm not as young as I was back then. You seem youthful, David, seriously. Well, you know, I don't heal as fast. There's, there's a lot of things. You know, there are a lot of opportunities now where all of these musicians are doing collaborative, not just albums, but also benefits and social causes. I'm lucky if I'm asked to do any of that, really. I'm kind of old news. You know, I reached my height right at the end of the 70s was, was when I had the biggest audiences and all that stuff. So I, I'm not the first person people think of to ask on these things. I just did a, a show. There was a friend of mine named Dick Bolk who worked for Martin Guitars, and he retired and had a retirement concert with some of the people that he'd worked with, including John Mayer, Steve Miller. Uh, so I played that. I got to play with Steve, and I got to do a duet, just me and John. And it was great fun in the crowd. I mean, that got a really extraordinary reaction from the crowd. You deserve it. I mean, you contributed so much to music for the time that you were out there, and you deserve a comeback? It's impossible. It will not happen. This is an ageist business, and a newspaper that has reviewed your performances 20 years ago 
is not interested in, in reviewing it now. They want something where the target audience, which is always a young audience, is anxious to buy tickets. I ask everybody, what is the most embarrassing moment that they had on stage? And they all say, oh, just one? <laughs> Can you remember an embarrassing moment on stage? I was doing a uh, benefit concert in memorial for The Bottom Line, which was a great club in New York City. And one of my favorite singers, Darlene Love, was singing. And for the last tune, she was standing up front singing in front of the amplifiers. I always put my guitar in front of the microphone rather than behind, pointed at me. And I didn't realize that where I was, I was in the back with the rest of the band, but I couldn't hear a note I played. And I'm trying to find a part, and I know I'm all over the place, you know. And after we ran this tune down, she came back and uh, spoke to the other guitar player and said, you got to turn, all I can hear is that damn guitar. And I knew it was me, and I I told her it was me and that it wouldn't happen again. That's terrific. David, thank you for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. That night, as I watched Bromberg perform at the barn, flanked by his band and special guests Larry Campbell and Jay Unger, the blues made everyone smile with a performance worthy of a time capsule. Well, that does it for this episode of The Tour. I hope you liked our conversation. Go ahead and share it with your friends and followers, and do me a favor, write a review. It'll help more people find us. Thanks for listening to The Tour. This episode has been brought to you by Canova Communications, leaders in creating multi-platform content. Visit canovacommunications.com. The Tour is also part of the Osiris family of podcasts, connecting you with music, artists, and culture. Hear it all at osirispod.com. And for music news, check out our partner, Relics Magazine at relics.com. I'm your host, Ted Canova. Remember, music makes it all better. See you next time. Nothing but the now to get right down to business, I'll call my first witness. That woman said she loved only me.
and it's me that's doing time and ain't nothing that the law could do Blue.